Welcome to the show. We have two interviews for you today. I had the pleasure of interviewing Pornima Vijay Shankar of Femgenia and previously one of the founding engineers at Mint. Secondly, we have an interview with the CEO of Innovate Finance, Lawrence Wintermeyer, who was speaking with Chris Skinner about the launch of their report on the industry sandbox consultation. Enjoy. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I am Aidan Davis. I have the pleasure today of talking to Pornima Vijay Shankar, founder of Femgenia and previously the founding engineer at pioneering PFM Mint. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Welcome to sunny-ish London. It got a bit cloudy today. It's a little bit cold. You're actually from the valley. I am. How did you end up there? I ended up in the valley because it was basically my dream to always be there. I went to school on the East Coast and as you know, I didn't intend to major in engineering, but once I did, I decided I wanted to be in Silicon Valley. I, I always wanted to be in California, but Silicon Valley sort of drew my attention. So I've been out there since 2004, pretty, pretty long time now, and moved out in kind of an unpopular era. It was dot-com bust, you know, kind of the post-dot-com bust, dealing with that. And then as I was there the year after Google IPO'd, so started to get a little bit more interest in the area, and it's just been growing like gangbusters ever since. You touched on your career in engineering. How did you end up with a career in engineering? Did you mean to be an engineer? I actually had done a lot of engineering stuff growing up. My dad's a hardware engineer, so primarily semiconductor companies. I went to a fab, the place where they make chips and wafers, very young age, and I had computers growing up. So it always been part of technology, but I never thought of it as a career because I thought, oh, you know, my dad has got this nine to five job. How boring. I need something more exciting. I need to travel. I need to meet people. I need to be able to do all these other things, right? So never considered it until I got to college and discovered what being an attorney was going to be like. So you're going to be a lawyer. Yeah. And, uh, and so then kind of thought, oh, I could be a patent attorney. But then just software engineering drew me in and got into the startup space. So now I feel like I have found what I want to do. And I never would have thought about that from the beginning. So it's good for those people that are worried, you know, you, you can discover later on. Uh, as we are a fintech show, we must start by talking about Mint. How did you end up there? I actually knew about the idea back in 2005. My buddy from college, Aaron Patzer, is the founder. And he was talking to me about it. At the time, he was based in Austin. was trying to convince him to move to the Valley to get in touch with more investors and technical folks. So he ended up moving out. He had a terrible name for it. It was called Money Intelligence. I teased him about the that name. It feels like someone you could use that name now, robo-advisor. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like, you know, if this is going to go and be for millennials, sort of younger demographic, money intelligence really doesn't feel like the right thing. And he challenged me to come up with a better name. I thought about it for about I don't know, 60 seconds or something and thought, how about Mint? He really liked it. I really liked it. And ever since then, I just really wanted to work there. So long story short, I actually ended up getting laid off from my job in 2006 and thought it was the perfect opportunity to join a startup. And the rest is sort of history. And how did it feel at that time building what, what is known in our industry as PFM now, probably before it was PFM, before fintech as a word was uttered? How did it feel building something like that? 
You know, we thought it actually existed because there was Quicken, there was Microsoft Money. Wasabi. Exactly, yeah, Wasabi launched a year before we did. And my dad, even, who was the hardware engineer, was like, why are you doing this? It already exists. We just thought what we were doing was taking shrink wrap software and putting it online and making it more accessible, again, for millennials, sort of the next generation. So we didn't really think this is a brand new category. But as we got more and more into it, we realized, oh, actually, we are impacting this this new category. And there are a lot more companies, definitely startups coming out. But we thought it already existed. It was just not maybe as talked about. And quite frankly, like the entire startup scene and fintech scene was pretty nascent overall in that era. Was there a kind of point when you realized, wait a minute, this, this, is, this is going, it's getting big, it's growing fast? Was there a tipping point, so to speak? Yeah. It was, ironically enough, it was 2008. <laughs> a good year? <laughs> yeah, yeah not, a, not a very good year for the rest of the world, but for us, it was surprisingly a good year. We had raised a significant amount of capital at that point. We were growing steadily, and a lot of our competitors were struggling because they didn't quite have the product or the marketing chops that we had. So we felt confident, but we were also really cautious because we thought, okay, either this is going to be great because people are going to care about the market now that everything is tanking, or it's going to be horrible because we're not going to be able to raise, we're not going to be able to monetize and grow a business. So we were kind of cautiously optimistic in that era. But that's that 2008, 2009, that's when we knew, okay, this is this is starting to get interesting and heat up. And were the banks kind of starting to come calling or start to be jealous? Well, first we were getting a lot of calls. Uh, I was definitely getting calls because people were saying, this bank no longer exists. Please take them off your website. <laughs> uh, and then some banks didn't like us doing what we were doing, screen scraping. And others were... You know, I think at the time, some didn't take us seriously enough because they thought, oh, you know, 20-something Silicon Valley, who's going to trust them? Is this really going to take off? So some were resistant, but I think more and more they were at least paying attention. Even if they thought we were just kids, they were paying attention to what we were doing because it wasn't just us. There were more and more startups like us. And I think that's when the tipping point happened. So around 2009, 2010, post our acquisition, people started to take more notice. I'm sure there's still a few people who say, oh, nobody's going to trust these new brand new startups. So uh, you touched on screen scraping there. Um, Obviously, a bit of an open banking revolution kind of happening, certainly in London and around the world. But yeah, you're primarily screen scraping, maybe a few XML feeds at the time. We actually were using Yodely at the time. Yeah, so they were the leading edge in terms of screen scraping. We did not have our own technology. We leveraged them. And that became the focus. When we got acquired, then we ended up going with Intuit's in-house solution. Do you, how did you find dealing with Yodely at that time? I guess that's they, they were quite, they, were, they still are quite a unique proposition in the market. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a challenge. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was a challenge, yeah. <laughs> Be kind to my, my Yodely folks. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think people know that now, and that's why you're starting to see uh, a couple startups in this space who are interested in you know, providing an easier UI and access to that data because it can be valuable. Yeah, and I think what we're certainly seeing from regulators saying, well, this is 
customer data, they should right. be able to use it in safer ways than forcing companies to write screen scraping routines, etc. Yeah. I guess that's something you would strongly advocate. I, I think, you know, so the first thing is like, we going in put a lot of emphasis into building trust and credibility. One, because yeah, we're 20 something sitting in Silicon Valley. And two, because we're dealing with sensitive financial data. And we thought, okay, yes, we are using read-only data, but other people don't know that, right? They feel like if they give us access to their data, then all of a sudden they have given us access to their like front door of their home, right? So we had to do a lot in terms of security, both internally as well as conveying that externally. And I think that's something that you have to just keep working on. So whether or not you think, yeah, it's customer data, it's valuable, we want to give it back to um, the folks, both banks and the customers still feel like what what's going to happen. And if I give them this for convenience, what am I going to get in return? Uh, I think that's just going to be an ongoing question people have to answer in fintech. Yeah, that's certainly a case. I think there's a, re- a report recently from Equifax saying people, it's going to be an interesting kind of exchange of value. You know, people are kind of used, used to plugging in Facebook apps, yep. but still reticent or permissions on a mobile app. Permissions for your banking data is going to be a, an interesting customer challenge. There'll be some people, you know, techies and yeah. who might understand it a little bit better, but for it to become a true mainstream proposition uh, is going to take some some work. It's, it's the kind of thing where it just takes one security breach and then everybody gets worried, right? I, I remember I was actually one of those people that got targeted in the Target credit card incident. So when things like that happen, people all of a sudden start labeling anything related to it, even if it's the farthest you know, if you're like, hey, I just bought a prepaid card, they're like, no, you never know how they're going to get access to that information. It's like, it's a prepaid card, you know? So people just get get on a high alert for anything and everything that's financially related. I guess, are you still a Mint user all these I years am. later? That's, yeah. that's a great idea. Yeah, I am because I actually just bought a house. And so I had to keep uh, in touch with my credit score. <laughs> I also had to keep on top of my finances. So yeah, I am still a Mint user. I probably log in like, now once a month, sometimes more often than not. I'm always curious to see what they've done since. And I will occasionally, you know, get a new credit card too. Are you a harsh critic of UI and UX? I am more of the, you know, functionality is important to sort of workflow. Things don't necessarily have to be beautiful, but they do need to be functional. And so I wouldn't say I'm so harsh in that I won't use a product if it's you know, not got beautiful icons and and stuff like that. But I think honestly, at the end of the day, design conveys trust. And so any site, if I go on and it looks like it was built in the 90s, I'm going to be on high alert. Uh, you know, it's, it's, Every bank. Then. Yeah, it's, it's fine if it's uh, you know, not the prettiest thing, but at the end of the day, your design should convey that, that trust that you're going for. So let's switch away from Mint then, the yeah. buyout by Intuit, which we kind of mentioned. Yeah, that gave you a chance to change paths, I guess. What, what happened after Mint? Yeah, so after Mint, I actually had to take a pretty serious course around what did I want to do next with my career. I had a number of opportunities to go and like be people's technical co-founder or CTO. And I just thought, you know, I think this is my chance to strike out on my own. And I never would have, 
you know, thought to do that prior. And certainly if Mint hadn't been successful, I'd either still be there or I'd be somewhere else, right? So I thought, this is my chance. Let's go for it. I ended up starting another company. Uh, it was called BusyBeat. It was in the small business space. We had started playing around with small business financing and fintech at Mint. So I thought it would be a nice extension of my learning and worked on that business between 2010. Around 2012, ended up kind of putting it on the back burner and then recently shut it down to focus all my effort on Femgineer. Tell us more about Femgineer then. Yeah. So Femgineer actually started when I was at Mint as a blog. It was about engineering entrepreneurship, really just a thing that all the cool kids were doing in the Valley and I didn't want to miss out. So some of my friends, you know, Kagan, Dave McClure, who's, as you know, at 500 Startups, were kind of pushing me and saying, hey, you know, there's not a lot of women blogging. There's not a lot of women engineers talking about entrepreneurship. You should, you should start doing this. So I started casually posting and then post Mint acquisition was just getting a lot of opportunities to speak and teach. So kind of kept cultivating that. And then around 2013, decided to transform that from just being a blog into a business. So today we're an education company and our focus is helping techies build products and companies, primarily through high touch online courses. So you come to us, we'll teach you how to go from idea to prototype, how to get that prototype out and attract customers. So we've got like a number of courses like this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just touching on, uh, I guess, more of a diversity angle, Femgineer is a great name. Uh, you mentioned that you were the only woman on staff at Mint at the beginning? Not the only, well, in the beginning, only woman on staff, but uh, eventually engineering, yeah, I was the only, was the only woman. We were, we got to about a, we were still a pretty scrappy engineering team. So I think at the time of acquisition, we were a little under 10. Okay. Yeah. And I guess it's still one of those topics that we shouldn't stop talking about because it's still no, a problem, but never. The, the bias is definitely towards yeah. white males bro culture, et cetera, what do we do? Yeah, well, I think it's about not asking that question anymore <laughs> and actually just saying we're going to start hiring and we're going to be aggressive about how we hire. Because at the end of the day, look, startups are aggressive when it comes to customer acquisition. Startups are aggressive when it comes to fundraising. So why is this not a priority? And I think the bigger question isn't about we need women or we need minority groups, but what are you going to do when you get to that 100-person engineering team and there's just not enough supply? You know, there's already, by 2020, an estimated shortage of computer programmers in the U.S. There's not enough supply in terms of graduating and, you know, thanks to current administration, there's, <laughs> just gonna there's not a lot of immigrants coming in either. So that means people who are, you know, in the field, there's just going to be like a bigger, bigger war. So who are you going to turn to to kind of fill that gap? Um, you're certainly going to have to look to recruiting more women and investing in them, just like you would invest in any other employee. So over the course of my career, I've seen this as more of a management issue and people aren't placing a priority on, you know, who do they want to attract? Who do they want to retain as employees? Instead, a lot of their focus is like product, revenue and and I get it like being in a startup you know you're in survivor mode you're sink or swim it's hard to say hey we're not going to take this uh engineer because they have a penis right you're just like we're going to get all hands on deck but I think once you get to that five person or even when you get 
when you start to get to that 10 person, it becomes harder. It becomes harder to recruit because people start to look around. Like when they come in, even when I was recruiting at Mint, people would walk in and say, well, it's great that you're here. Where's everybody else? Right. And I, I had to say, yeah, that's, that's why I'm here. My goal is to get more, you know, women in the door. And so they're very, very good at smelling and knowing when things just aren't, you know, quite adding up. Uh, so I think people have to start thinking about that very, very early on and making that a priority. And it's got to come from the CEO, the founders. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And so really thinking about what does your candidate pool look like? What are you doing to turn people off? Uh, and why are people leaving? You know, even if you've gotten a team in place and you're happy, if somebody decides to leave, why are they leaving? And when you start to see a particular type of person leaving, you know, having kind of deeper conversations around why that's happening. Yeah, the recent Susan Fowler story at, at Uber was, I, I found it particularly shocking, but I think for a lot of people, the commentary around it was, this is normal practice for some people. This is what they're used to. Yeah. Which is just, which makes it even more horrific. It's sad when people say it's normal, right? Because we don't want normal. And I think it's not unique. It's just the sort of thing where they're already under a microscope. So it became obvious very quickly. But again, to my point, you know, the trend was more and more women were leaving. And when that happens, you've got to take stock and say, okay, are they just telling us one story and there's another reason? Uh, and more importantly, how is this going to affect us if we want to continue growing, right? Just like if a customer base started leaving, like if all of a sudden your customers who were women said, I'm not going to use this product anymore, wouldn't you take the time to be like, why are we losing money, <laughs> right? I, I'm, sure, I'm sure people would be at least a little bit curious. So I think you know, same rules apply. So spend as much as you do on market research on your actually your HR functions, et cetera, understanding your staff. Yeah. I, I guess coming back to Femgineer sure. then, um, it feels like A, there's a big education piece there mm -hmm. and that is a big part of your remits. I'm not yeah. saying that's your only remit, but right. education is hugely, hugely important. Yep. Yeah. And so for us, you know, we want to cultivate the next set of leaders who want to build companies, whether they're men or women, you know, more than 50% of our students are male. We believe very strongly in having male allies. We know that there are dads, partners, brothers who want to champion having more women. So we don't kind of shy away from having them participate. But we also want to see, you know, female led businesses as well. Do you think that's going to be a challenge? It's still a challenge for VC funding as well. As the stats there are pretty poor. Yeah. The, the number of female founders that I are mean, funded. Uh, again, it's a systematic problem. There's, there needs to be more and more female VCs. Fortunately, there are a lot that are coming into the forefront. You know, uh, Eileen Lee is a great example of that. There's a lot that 500 Startups is doing with its uh, female partners. So we're starting to see it, but it's still not you know, tipping over. There's what, like less than 5% of the companies that are funded, that are female founded. Uh, and a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's a pipeline problem, et cetera. I, I truly believe that there are more and more women starting businesses. Maybe they're not yet in the know of starting a VC funded business. So there's some education that has to take place there. Uh, but I do know that there are women who are actively looking to build big businesses. The other thing, kind of funnily enough, is that there are men who start businesses who don't say this is going to be a billion dollar business, or maybe they do, but then they kind of 
fizzle out, right? So that it, it comes into the question of how do you think about funding? Who do you think about funding? Uh, and a lot of times investors go in funding a guy thinking, okay, he might not win this one, but somewhere in his trajectory of 30 years, there's going to hopefully be one home run and I don't want to miss out on that. And I think those same rules need to apply to women. Just wider then, what is the goal for Femgineer? Uh, where are you you're targeting accelerators, hubs, etc.? One of our goals is to help with that whole process of getting into accelerators. So people come to us in either the idea stage or right after they've launched and they're sort of struggling to get that traction. So we help them there and also educate them on what's it going to take to get into an accelerator, what's it going to take to get angel funding or you know venture capital. So we like to play early on, and then there's a number of great places they can decide to go, or if they decide they want to bootstrap and grow their business, we're happy to support that as well. Any advice for blossoming fintech companies? Yeah, uh, I think you know it's it's all about figuring out your differentiation because there's a lot of stuff going on in this space. And I know, particularly in Europe, it seems like people are very keen on banking uh, more than anything else. But in the US, I, I feel like there is a lot more verticals within it. I, I know you guys talked about sort of the fragmentation of fintech. And I actually think that's kind of a good, good thing. Not because we want to have so many companies, but because there's a lot of things that people are interested in, right? So I had a company I was advising called Lenda. They do um, home refinancing. So there's a lot in sort of that whole mortgage, uh, whether it's refinance or first-time loans. So there's a lot going on there. And that's kind of even tied into banking, but it's not really in the sense that, you know, they need to get to a point where they're doing their own loans or origination, then they need to do a bank. But prior to that, they can do a lot to get off the ground. Uh, it sounds like that's what's happening here too, but I don't see quite the nuance yet. So I'm, I'm curious to see how things will evolve in Europe. Yes, so we are too. It's <laughs> yeah. going to be interesting to see how that comes out. Yeah. Um, I guess a couple of quick questions to finish. If you could go back in time, what bit of advice would you give to yourself? Yeah, I'd say just go for it. Yeah, I think we spend a lot of time, or at least I spent a lot of time early on in my career thinking like, oh, you know, I'm not ready to join a startup or I'm not ready to build a product. And the sooner you get started, the sooner you start learning and you kind of compound that learning. So I'm, I'm happy that I did when I did, but I think it's totally okay to do it right out of college or in college when you have a little bit more of a safety net than when you're, when you're in the real world and you have to you know, pay pay your student loans and pay rent and stuff like that. Houses. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so get started early. And then I'd also say, you know, there's, there's also no shame in like starting on the side. I think a lot of people who do start a little bit later, their concern is always, oh, am I invested enough if I'm doing this on a side? But the market is changing. You know, investment, while there are a lot of folks out there investing, are taking time and being really thoughtful about where they're placing their bets. So the longer you can bootstrap, the longer you can finance your own idea and get it off the ground, the better off you are. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and for someone who seems very, very busy, traveling around, Femme Engineer, your own show, yeah. etc., any number one productivity hack? Sleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a big advocate of when, sleep. When? Just whenever you can get little bits I, of sleep? I do that, but I, you know, I do my seven to eight hours. And then for me, I have a pretty regular yoga practice. 
So I uh, just finished a 60-day challenge, and when I go back to the States, I'll get back on the mat. Uh, but it really helps me to kind of calm down, get things done systematically, and, and make those tough decisions that you've got to make every day. And lastly then, what is your golden rule of doing business? What goes around comes around. So as much as we'd like to think, oh, no one's going to know, you know, we have these great things called social media now. <laughs> so I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, yeah, I can cut corners here or there, or I can tell someone to like bug off, but it's, uh, it's unfortunately going to come back. And even if it doesn't come back initially, you never know when. So might as well save yourself that energy of, of being paranoid and, uh, and be respectful. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. My name is Chris Skinner, and today I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming back Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance, which is the leading network organization for everyone involved in fintech globally, based here in sunny old London. Um, Innovate Finance has just published a really interesting report about how industry sandboxes are working. And maybe to begin with, Lawrence, you could just explain a little bit around what is a sandbox? Because obviously we need to have everyone aware of what it is first. <laughs> uh, well, well, great, Chris, uh, certainly will. And always delighted to, 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 to be on. But maybe I can actually reach out, given we uh, used and, and crowdsourced the industry's point of view on sandboxes, uh, I could use your help because you're one of the, you know, the first published uh, authors on industry sandboxes for financial services and quite often a, you know ahead of the curve or ahead of your time uh, but we'll, we'll certainly try to give you a concise view based on the consultation uh, but broadly um, a sandbox is an off-market environment for developing and, and testing in this case uh, digital proof of concepts so uh, in my own experience, having worked quite a bit in the Java and open source community, uh, sandboxes are, are great environments where quite often people, particularly in the open source world, uh, leave all sorts of data, usable code, assets, uh, and things to really help developers accelerate their proof of concepts of the solutions. And in, in the consultation, what industry is fed back to us, there's a requirement in, in the financial services sector, and that's you know banking, insurance, asset management, and all, all of the different verticals, and a, a strong requirement, particularly from the FinTech and the development community, 
to have industry sandboxes. And, and, and just simply, you, you know, maybe we can come on to regulatory sandboxes, which as you know, have been a bit trendy all, all around the world, but what really helps to find an industry sandbox in this case, because many institutions or, or programs may already have environments like this up and running. Uh, but the key concept behind this is that if you're a provider anywhere in the ecosystem that has data that is of use to the industry and to developers, so that could be market sensitive data, it could be anonymized, but demographically represented customer data from territories for, for uh, you know, testing things, whether that's application programming interfaces, so APIs to uh, you know, pieces of code that do things like help you get payments done or process payments for, for consumers. Generally, those, those assets are placed in, in, in sandboxes with you know, sometimes with rights or obligations associated with them, but certainly to help developers really evolve or accelerate their, their own solutions. And, and so really industry has sort of fed back a couple of key messages. Uh, this would be great to have one because whether you're an institutional innovator or a startup innovator, if, if you were saying, hey, gee, who, where's the industry data that I can use to test my solution now? You actually have to go and find it in proprietary environments or one-on-one. -on -one. So the, the idea is to try to incentivize industry to you know, better sort of put this sort of stuff in the community. To, to help accelerate everyone that's you know really developing solutions around this in the community. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, the regulator here in the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority, was the first that I saw to create an industry sandbox, and they invited you to chair this report. Did you find um, many similarities of approach around the world uh, in terms of there's lots of industry sandboxes now in other countries, Singapore, Dubai, etc. Are, are they all doing the same things, or is it different, do you think? Right. Well, uh, in, in fact, this is one of the most important, uh, I think, findings of the report in that um, ultimately what we've done is uh, constructed all of the ingredients that the community have really specified around industry sandboxes because there's so many different variants. And so, you know, we might want to talk about that from an industry perspective because you know you've got everything from uh, the basic startup proof of concept sandbox through to some quite sophisticated ones. But for the purposes of this discussion, um, you know the global taxonomy, there are two types of sandboxes. One is an industry sandbox in, 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 in this case, which is something that industry uh, you know owns or, or incentivized to play uh, play with. And the other is a regulatory sandbox which again, the Financial Conduct Authority here in the UK, really we think that we're probably the first ones to market with one. And again, there are many different variants of those as well. And I think, you know, we, we've clocked, I think in excess of, yeah, over 16 variants of innovative sandboxes, either up and running or in the process of being designed by regulators around the world. I think from where we're sitting today, the FCA and MAS, MAS and Singapore seem to be the ones that um, have made the most progress with them. Australia's uh, trucking along with its own as well, but, but they're all slightly different as well. So I'd, I'd certainly encourage readers to look into it. If we just looked at the FCA, the FCA regulatory sandbox 
is a cohort model where they've invited fintechs to apply to do what we would call on-market testing. And, and, and on-market testing is probably the, the easiest way to delineate between an industry sandbox and a regulatory sandbox and that a regulatory sandbox in the context of the FCA says, come and try your proof of concept, but we'll try it on a small number of real clients, but we'll limit the liability of it. Um, and they're particularly focusing on uh, technologies that they think really deliver an innovative or a competitive proposition to consumers. They're through the first cohort. Some of the findings have been released they're on the second cohort. So, so that's the reg sandbox. On the industry uh, sandbox, which we've focused on, we broadly call that off-market. While you might, in some capacity, involve real customers in a proof of concept or a lab in an industry sandbox, it is off-market, it is you know, um, not regulated, and it is not using real customers or real data without the consent of customers. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it's kind of a playground where you can start to test ideas and validate concepts. Um, and I did see that one of the things noted around the report is that uh, there's obviously a lot of banks who are playing with some key technologies like blockchain and doing lots and lots of proofs of concept, but that can actually become an exhaustive process. Is this a way in which you can speed the, these processes and overcome you know, the whole fact that too many banks are doing too many things? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I would hope um, that particularly with emerging technologies, that sandboxes, industry sandboxes, offer another or new opportunity for a greater degree of syndication and collaboration in order to help accelerate um, outcomes. In the current environment, we've got... Uh, as you well know, a lot of bilateral to multilateral syndication on, on you know, blockchain, you know, from, from R3 to all sorts of bilateral projects. I think the message from industry is um, where there is an excellent use case, and typically an excellent use case is solving, um, you know, a problem, we, we liked Anna Wallace at the FCA came up with this term wicked problem. And wicked problem is generally, you know, something that has a high degree of either friction or cost and technology or the regulatory environment, technological and the consumption supply chain, where there are incentives for industry to solve those that, that industry sandboxes, before you even get to a regulatory sandbox, offer a great opportunity as a theater of engagement to bring together uh, a, a larger consortium on that. But, you know, again, you know as well as I do, Chris, and they were a bit long in the tooth, institutions do what institutions want to do and, you know, have the number of programs that they have running. So uh, I think we'll have to wait and see, you, you know, whether the incentives of participating or behaving in that way um, you, you know, actually do help accelerate things. But I, I would be hopeful that if if the programs are constructed right, and, and then particularly where the regulator, if it is a, I think if it's a consortium, you know, problem in an industry sandbox where the regulator is, is incentivizing industry to get something right, you know, clearly we may get a, you know, a, a greater degree of participation and acceleration. And so, you know, everybody's always talking about regulatory, our favorite regulatory issues around KYC, uh, AML, 
those, those sorts of things. I actually personally think those may, may be a bit far off, but um, you know, certainly solving wicked problems around regulatory reporting now that we're moving into a digital world that might be a sensible way for getting a greater collection of institutions to come together. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that regulators, um, from our experience, uh, particularly within the financial institutions, have been viewed as uh, barrier stroke um, protector of the industry. And it's actually moving quite substantially through the sandbox program to becoming more of an enabler of industry efficiency. And what I think I've seen happening with most of the regulatory sandboxes is they're either focusing on improving the customer experience or reducing inefficiencies in the existing incumbent processes or trying to innovate around new models and services. And that seems to be a theme that came out of the uh, report that you produced. I think that those are the, the real sort of headlines that the regulators trying to create more, not competition necessarily, but better efficiency in the industry. Yes, in, in, indeed, uh, to, to all of those. Um, and, and so, one, here you know in the UK, the, uh, the, the FCA and the PSR uh, have particularly focused on designing Project Innovate and a lot of the uh, processes they have for regulatory approval uh, based on a competition mandate. And, you know, the competition mandate, which is focused on delivering a greater degree in diverse a better playing field or more diverse uh, propositions that represent the demographic consumption in the UK are, you know, some of the main root cause drivers behind Project Innovate, the regulatory sandbox, etc. I think that um, if, if you look at the continuum of, of small startups to institutions, there's a broad range of solutions that industry have really fed back to us uh, just on, on that point. If you're a startup, regulation and you're in a regulated space, um, you know, look, it's capital intensive, you're burning through, um, you know, you're burning through capital. And if, as in many cases, your partners are institutions or your potential partners are institutions for things, the capital expenditure of, of you know, doing, again, bilateral proof of concepts and getting through the procurement hurdles with five or six institutions are huge. And, you know, you, you quite often find that you you know, you're a few hundred grand down just the time that it spends you getting through some of the preliminary re regulatory hurdles and, and you, you know, the institutional bias of getting through the walls to even say, hey, this is a cool proof of concept. You should be looking at this for your for your consumers or, or your proposition. So the sandbox really makes sense at that end of the, 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 the continuum, uh, both for institutional collaboration or for community collaboration you know, using some of the tools we've spoken about, but as well uh, for engaging the regulator early. And, you know, we, we quite often use the peer-to-peer -peer model where we've got quite a sophisticated ecosystem evolving here in the UK. The peer-to-peer, -peer, you, you know, community has voted to be regulated um, and is going through the process of doing that. But the idea where we have new business models or new technologies that startups are bringing to the table, but can bring the regulator to the sandbox in an open form to simply observe and get a better understanding of the financial, the technology, you know, the operational risks involved in things, we think you know, could be very helpful and could help expedite um, you know, the path to regulation. I think where, where institutions are involved, institutions certainly have a much better uh, opportunity of working out from a, a, a startup community 
which solutions they might be able to work with if in the sandbox solutions have basically gone through uh, a credentialization process and, and, and are badged as saying, well, look, we're secure, we're procurable. You know, we might not have EBIT or we might not have a revenue model up, but we're bona fide and, and these are the things that we do. So let, let's draw the institutions and the industry in to come and look at all of these things we do. And, and then, you know, again, right up, back to the continuum we were just talking about with the institutions um, ultimately uh, are trying to solve institutional problems. And this is right down to, you know, the, the, the open API focus we have with the Open Bank Working Group and where that's gone now, um, you know, with the implementation, um, you know, the implementation group and, and PSD2 requirements for January. Uh, the, the opportunity for just institutions to, to better collaborate. Uh, we, we've got a requirement for sandboxes to be open, but consortia are consortias and need to be bound by the constraints of consortia. The opportunity to, again, get that, that, that going is a lot better. So, so we just feel from industry's perspective, there's really something in it for everyone. Uh, whether you're a global tech or a data player, you've got an opportunity to put your tools in if there are things that ultimately uh, you want the industry to use off-market. Um, and, you know, if you've got sensible revenue models, if they're on market, you know, the community will, will be the arbiter of choice here. And then for the regulator, for the standards authorities, um, sandboxes really offer a great opportunity in managed forms to come in and really be observers at an early stage of, of new technology or business model development to, to be able to uh, make an assessment about ultimately what they're going to see somewhere down the line if it's successful anyway. So I guess we, 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 we were pretty blown away with the input in the consultation and uh, Dea Markova, our program manager for this, I mean, she and I, sort of similar to you, thought we knew a lot about sandboxes until we did this consultation. So one, um, you know, the, the specificity and the, the design requirements the industry had re re really impressed us. But I think more importantly, if, if, if you could even get industry sandboxes to do half of the things that we've just been speaking about, they do offer a better opportunity to accelerate not just solutions in the retail space to end consumers, they offer an opportunity to hopefully reduce regulatory friction and the capital intensity of, of getting those solutions to market. And that's before we even get into some of the cap markets discussion, you know, you get back to blockchain and, you know, last year, I think the thing you and I were talking about was, um, you know, the blockchain proof of concepts in, in, in the settlement pr process seemed to pop up last year at this time and really sort of surprised us. I mean, you know, great, you, you can build a performance sports car um, in, in 90 hours, but, you know, security settlement still takes three weeks, um, you know, go, go, go figure. So, so you, know, you know, as you move back even into the, the cap marks and, you know, even into the, the market end of data, the CMEs, the NASDAQs, and the Reuters, there, there seems to be, uh, you know, great opportunities for, for, you know, getting those assets in. So uh, it, it's just been a fascinating, it really has been a fascinating consultation. Yeah, I think one of the key headlines um, that came out of it for me is that uh, to have a successful sandbox, you really need to have a completely open ecosystem with everyone able to participate from startups to the big banks. And I think the problem with that um, is that a lot of countries would find it difficult maybe to have an open ecosystem because the banks... Um, are pretty protective of their turf. And we've seen this, for example, with PSD2, where the fintech communities just come out with a manifesto to say that the banks are under EBA are implementing and interpreting PSD2 in a way that will block 
fintech um, access to data. So how do you get the big banks involved in these things? Well, uh, you, you know, again, uh, from, from our perspective, we were absolutely, uh, you know, delighted that broadly the industry and across industry and even institutions said, look, this needs to be open. And, and so we, we, we wouldn't be the arbiters of what, what groups of institutions, you know, are making uh, proclamations around what needs to be um, open or closed source. We, we, we think that particularly, you know, anything that, that, again, has come out of the open banking working group should should be open. And that, again, PSD2 has is, is set the charter for that. So re- recognizing the, the position of the statement that, you know, you've just made. And, you know, I get, get, get back to competition. Uh, the thing that when, when I was on the last 11FS uh, podcast or a couple of weeks we spoke ago, and, you know, it's, it's blown me away. I've been here for almost 30 years. Uh, ClearBank comes out and launches, you know, it's the first clearing bank in, in 250 years. Um, its business model is uh, really elegant in that it's digital, it's platform as a service, and, um, you know, it doesn't hold client accounts. It's got the Bank of England as its, you know, escrow, you know, client account manager. I mean, just extraordinary digital access to the seven payment schemes into SWIFT. So, <clears throat> you know, there broadly appears to us in many Western countries and some Asian countries to be uh, for there to be a move to open standards um, when it comes to infrastructure, um, you know, payments even identity but i think the point that you you, you've raised is one we need to be sensitive about because institutions uh, really have greater obligations around data and consumer protection you know quite often than other things in 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 the community the the case in the us is quite often looking at facebook you know relative to you know uh, a, a a large you know national bank so I just don't think it's as easy, um, you know, again, to, to, you know, to work out why or where the incentives are um, for constructing programs in the way they are. And again, you know, we're, we're focused on an open, you know, at Innovate Finance, we're focused on an open collaborative and, and you know, broadly nonpartisan or fintech secular uh, environment anyway. So we'd love to see open APIs and, you know, even with GDPR, um, you know, some of these data issues, which we recognize as complex solve. But, uh, we need to start, and so we think at least in the context of the industry sandbox and, and some of the regulation coming down the pike, it's giving us a better opportunity to get to the next level uh, of the interoperability that I think we would expect to see. I mean, you know, you know, I think you, you and I, if, if either you and I are around in 25 years, we'd be laughing at this and saying, you know, 25 years ago we, we, we were talking about this. Uh, having said that, um, you and I were talking about a lot of this stuff 25 years ago. And it's only happening now, um, so so let's just the hope on the next level. We've got a, we, we've got a bit more of an acceleration curve, and a lot of that, you know, has to do with uh, you, you know where digital is, and and you know the effective uh, you know processing power of computers and and, and, and networks. And just out of interest, um, to close, Lawrence, was there anything in the um, consultation that surprised you, or and anything that we've not covered that you think is worth noting? You know, just as a matter of of history, we've done an industry consultation, but through the invitation of the regulator, I think for the purposes of of, of listeners here, um, that was simply that uh, the regulator had put together a comprehensive architecture for sandboxes, uh, which included an industry sandbox in it. And so for the purposes of completion of work, had to answer that question. 
it, it just happened fortuitously and entirely randomly. We, we had published um, a, a high-level set of principles on, on sandboxes driven by our members. In, in, and this is back in, in you know, Q, Q3 of 2015. And they, they just happened to land at the same time. Um, and so we, were, we, we, we felt it a privilege to be appointed or invited to appoint to chair it. Uh, but we'd already actually done quite a bit of thinking around, you know, what we call startup sandboxes, showcase sandboxes, regulatory sandboxes, industry sandboxes, um, driven out of a requirement from, 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 from members. So we, we've arrived at a point now where we've delivered a consultation and we were really um, impressed with the FCA because they asked us to do it. And we said, well, we're happy to, but we're a small independent not-for-profit, so we're going to have to use a, a number of our, our, our partners uh, to come together to, to, to you know, deliver this, number one. We'd like to run it as a Google Sprint, given that there isn't a big regulatory uh, you know, side of it. So we, we'd rather run it as a, you know, a design process, which they were really happy about, and we used very innovative uh, tools even to get through, through, through the consultation. Um, and we'd like to invite everyone in the world. So I know we're in the UK, but gee, um, you know, you're building fintech bridges. Um, we have a lot of members, you know, out of our, our institutional member base, half of the, our institutional members in, in, you know, in Innovate Finance are actually non-domiciled here. And, you know, we've got all of these big global professional services firm and tech co's that have, uh, you know, clients all around the world. And we were really delighted that the FCA were open to, to that. And, and, you know, subsequently, that, that's how the consultation was run. We, we also felt as an important point, and again, these are probably more geek points to the, the people in this community that have watched this, that ra rather than provide feedback to, to the FCA who commissioned the work, that we needed to communicate uh, the findings as a recipe book, not just to industry, but it, it's it's a recipe book for regulators. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in Australia, Mass, Toronto, the messages in there are, are from industry to regulators. And and so I, I think, one, that just demonstrates, you know, the respect we have for the FCA here as, you know, Project Innovate and the regulatory sandbox are only a small part of a fairly large regulator that is a public service organization but we, we just felt that that spirit you know really reflected how innovative they are in, in in their own ways of working and and so we were delighted in essence because we, we we've got a product that frankly i don't think it matters where you are in the world i think it broadly represents you know what industries what you know wants and what we what industry wanted to communicate to, to regulators about this so uh, we kind of think that's pretty cool, and I, I, I'm not quite sure that when uh, Day and I started the process with the FCA, we would have thought we would have ended up with something, you know, as as elegant as that. So we're 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 pretty happy with it, really. But we recognize a it's technical, and that you you know you need a degree of orientation on sandboxes, and b you know gee there aren't any easy answers here. There are a lot of big asks, but. You know how you configure the recipe in your own area for what you want to do is 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 you know really up to you to work out. We've just laid out the ingredients and 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 the big asks. I think it's a really interesting piece of research, Lawrence, and uh, you can check out the publication on the Industry Sandbox consultation at industrysandbox.org. Uh, that's all for now, so thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear on Fintech Insiders, then subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to review us on iTunes as it helps people to find the podcast. That's all for now. Bye.